0: Greetings and welcome, everyone, once again to Author in the Room, a monthly program sponsored by JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and IHI, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. My name is Dr. Chuck Hallow, and I'll be your moderator for today's call. We're delighted that you can join us. As you know, Author in the Room calls are designed to translate new knowledge, or what is published in a recent JAMA article, into actionable steps that can improve clinical practice and patient care. We have another wonderful call today that we're excited about. Uh, for your information, um, the next author in the room call will be Wednesday, February 18th at 2 o'clock p.m., and that article will be Treadmill Exercise and Resistance Training in Patients with Peripheral Artery Disease, and the author will be Dr. Mary McDermott, so we're excited about that. That uh, article appeared in the January 14th, 2009 issue of JAMA. As you know, Author in the Room occurs on the third Wednesday of every month at 2 o'clock p.m. I'd like to just thank uh, for a moment Dr. Maggie Winker, uh, one of the deputy editors of JAMA, for selecting the articles every month, and would also like to uh, thank the staff at IHI in particular, uh, Lauren Hayden, for her uh, organizational efforts behind Author in the Room. This is our fourth year of really fantastic learning and discussions with a great set of authors, uh, and today is certainly no exception to that. Today, our featured author is Dr. David Jenkins, and we're delighted to uh, have him join us uh, from Toronto. He's the first author in the article, Effect of Low Glycemic Index, or a High Cereal Fiber Diet on Type 2 Diabetes, and I am told that we should announce that no granola will be served during the conference call today. Or maybe we should serve Granova. Dr. Jenks can, uh, uh, can uh, inform us about that. The article appeared in the December 17, 2008 uh, issue of JAMA. Welcome, Dr. Jenkins.
1: Chuck, thank you very much indeed. Um, uh,
0: could I, let me just give you a quick introduction and then we'll move, we'll, we'll move on. Can I introduce you? Please do. Dr. Jenkins probably does not need uh, much of an introduction. I found out uh, when we were uh, preparing for the call that he does have. Uh, his own Wikipedia, uh, page of no particular effort of his own. Uh, and I am told by him that uh, at times your daughter and your daughters and their friends can edit your Wikipedia page, so that could be somewhat dangerous. But, uh, he's out there. <laughs> he is the director of Risk Factor modi- uh, Modification Center at St. Michael's Hospital the University of Toronto and a professor in the Canadian uh, Research Chair in Nutrition and Metabolism in the Department of uh, Nutritional Sciences. Uh, at the University of Toronto. Uh, Dr. Jenkins.
1: Jack, thank you. Uh, I think you said my brief was to to give some sort of context to what we've done, discuss what we've done and where I thought it was going, and then uh, you you open the floor to questions. Uh, <coughs> I think probably just in a nutshell, one of the things that's been very interesting recently <coughs> are the studies that have looked at intensive uh, treatment of, or more intensive, treat glycemic treatment of diabetes, studies with the names ACCORD, ADVANCE, and the uh, VA Diabetes Trial. Um, ironically, um, all these appeared in the last uh, six months or so, and all have shown that, um, or all have failed to show, the, the hoped-for reduction in uh, in, in uh, glycemic control Uh, being associated with not only reduced uh, microvascular disease, which was seen, but uh, reduced macrovascular disease, heart disease as the the leading cause of death in diabetes. Um, One had hoped that uh, this would be reversed, um, but um, it wasn't. And that, I think, poses a problem as to whether there are alternative approaches um, to the treatment of diabetes which might actually give us good glycemic control and reduce um, heart disease risk. Uh, there, there, there's certainly a lot of hope there. Um, the follow-up of the UK PDS study, um, the, the British study looking at type 2 diabetes, uh, showed that in the 10 years after the, the finish of the study, um, There's what there seems to be metabolic memory, because uh, there, although there was no difference in the hemoglobin A1c, uh, as it were, the memory of the previous better control resulted in an improvement, a significant reduction in cardiovascular disease, which had failed to be improved during the actual study itself. And the same thing happened in type 1 diabetes um, earlier on in the BCCT uh, Follow-up. So it's the follow-up, the metabolic memory, even though, uh, as it were, the, uh, the song is ended, uh, the melody still lingers on, in other words, the improved, con- the improved control of a past time is reflected in better uh, cardiovascular outcomes. And then there was another drug, a drug called Acabose, uh, the alpha-glycoside hydrolase inhibitor, uh, which is less frequently used, but that slows carbohydrate absorption. And that, too, has been uh, associated with both reduction in in, uh, micro- and macrovascular disease, cardiovascular disease, and reductions in blood pressure. So that really um, encouraged us to to look at uh, diet. In other words, diet as a means of uh, reducing the glycemic excursion, not by reducing the amount of carbohydrate in the diet, Um, but by reducing the rate at which it's digested. In other words, feeding low glycemic index foods or slowly absorbed foods. Uh, And we we undertook a study uh, with 210 participants randomized to receive either what we would consider conventional care, which is a high-fiber diet, um, or the low glycemic index diet. And these were patients who were type 2 diabetic patients treated with one or more um, oral hypoglycemic uh, medications. And I think that's important because these people were already um, treated reasonably well. They had starting hemoglobin A1Cs of round about uh, 7.1. So really reasonably uh, well-controlled people. Um, and what we found over the six months of the study uh, was that the low glycemic index diet um, outperformed the uh, low or the high fiber high cereal fiber diet um significantly, and um, it did so by about a point three or point four percent not a great deal. But enough to take the hemoglobin a1c uh, down into the 6.6 range which is the sort of range where the uh, the intensive diabetes control studies have aimed to get um, their hemoglobin a1c's so we thought that was something of, of use um, and we were particularly encouraged because <coughs> we also saw uh, a small but significant rise in HDL cholesterol which would uh, suggest uh, better cardiovascular outcomes and also reflected in the ratio of uh, LDL to HDL cholesterol. And there was a small uh, r- reduction in uh, diastolic blood pressure which was seen in the, um, in the, the sort of pr- per- protocol analysis. So I think Some things that would suggest to us that uh, we would have some benefits in terms of cardiovascular disease, and taking the the blood glucose level down with diet was not associated with any uh, major hypoglycemic episodes. There were were, um, hypoglycemic um, uh, episodes reported, but these these were not serious. There were about six in the total group of about 100. Uh, individuals, and all of them were on the uh, low glycemic index part of the study. So we feel that um, changing the diet may be another way in patients who are already treated with medications of achieving that little bit of extra glycemic control which we hope in the long run may may be reflected in terms of reduction in, in microvascular and macrovascular disease. The sort of foods that we would suggest um, are basically uh, the, the more traditional foods, foods like pasta, um, foods like uh, like beans, parboiled rice, Uncle Ben's rice. There's a brown version now, which is uh, which which is useful. Um, these sorts of foods, pumpernickel breads, um, coarse ground breads, whole grain, truly whole grain materials, uh, are useful. And we also find that uh, Uh, changing to more temperate climate fruit, fruits and apples, pears, oranges, berries, um, these these forms of fruit tend to have a lower glycemic index than some of the fruits we might might like, like uh, mangoes, bananas and pineapples. These tend to be somewhat higher on the scale. So uh, those sort of small changes, which actually end up being quite significant changes in the lives of, uh, of individuals, uh, nevertheless um, have benefit in terms of uh, glycemic control and, as I say, in other risk factors. So that, I think, is the, is, is the story as we've seen it. We hope it's a, a useful step, uh, step forward, and uh, uh, we'd be happy to answer any questions.
0: Thank you, Dr. Jenkins. I really appreciate the uh, the summary and the greater context uh, relating uh, your research uh, in this paper with other aspects of emerging information about diabetes management. Uh, we want to stress how important your participation is, those who are on the calls, uh, in this call. It's, this is a great forum to get clarification from Dr. Jenkins uh, in terms of the article or issues around dietary management of diabetes. There are a large number of uh, participants out there with several individuals per line. Some members of the media may be present on today's call, but for a background basis only. That's important to mention as we move towards um, the question-and-answer session. Uh, one other note, as we get started, this call is being recorded and will be made available on the IHI and JAMA websites as a streaming audio or podcast, and you can find them by going to either IHI.org or the JAMA um, uh, web uh webpage. So, uh, as we prepare to move to uh, questions, uh, we'd ask that you give us your not just questions for Dr. Jenkins, but some of your experience in working with diabetics on uh, dietary management. and I'll just get things started here, and then we'll have Patricia give us instructions for how to get in the queue. So one of the a uh, lot a lot of different questions, Dr. Jenkins, and I, I'm sure that the uh, participants will have many, many more. The magnitude of reduction, I think, in, uh, in the paper, uh, I think uh, the A1C is relatively impressive, essentially a half a point, and that's really of a similar magnitude that we see with many of the medications that we use for, di- uh, for uh, diabetes, particular adult-onset diabetes. Is that about accurate?
1: I think that's about accurate, yes. Certainly for, for things like ACABOS, which has which it, cut its, uh, its stripes, as it were,
0: Right. And you are widely credited with developing the concept of the glycemic index as a way of explaining the way in which dietary carbohydrates impact blood sugar. And I think that's probably an important thing for us to understand. It's possible that many of the people on the call already understand that, but it might be worth just one or two sentences to review that. So because of the foods that you recommended, we would all recognize those as being, or many of those as being high-carbohydrate foods. Uh, but uh, the glycemic index is, I guess, really what matters here.
1: Right. Well, <clears throat> basically, the, the, one of the reasons, thanks, Jack, one of the reasons that we, we felt it would be useful uh, many years ago to classify foods, to get a physiological classification of the carbohydrate foods we were feeding uh, to diabetic patients, because we felt that um, interest had been shown in the different types of fat which were emerging, the saturated, the polyunsaturated, the monounsaturated fats. Uh, there was some interest in animal versus vegetable protein. Uh, there was a lot of interest in dietary fibre and the different types of fibre, soluble, insoluble, and uh, the different sorts of, of fibre, all of which had physiological effects. And we thought, well, we should really be looking at the physiological effects of the absorbable carbohydrate. And those are in the days when we were, were using the term "lente" to describe slowly acting insulin. So we thought, wouldn't it be good if we could find lente carbohydrates? Because these would then go along um, with uh, with the injectable insulin, because you wouldn't have to rely on uh, on the pancreas to push out large amounts. And of course, in type two diabetics, uh, one loses first phase insulin. One has very often a, a slower approach to uh, insulinization uh, along with insulin resistance, which would make um, trickling the carbohydrate into the body a rather better approach to keeping one's, one's carbohydrate, as it were, on the level. So that, that was, that's the background behind the development of, of, of classification of the glycemic index, and so we thought, well, one of the best ways to do this was to standardize um, each particular food in, an in, in a given individual. Against a standard we we started with glucose and we we changed to bread because basically the palatability and the fact that it's it's easier to discuss um, how something rates on a bread scale than on a glucose scale in many ways so um, we we started re- investigating groups of individuals who were fed uh, both the standard um, and then the test food and by uh, by expressing the the standard um, as 100%, and then the, the test food as a, as, a, as a percentage of that, uh, one came up with a glycemic index number, and that allowed us to classify food. So obviously something that was, that was uh, slowly absorbed was less than 100%. So interestingly, uh, one of the, the first things that, that alerted us to the fact that it wasn't just the nutrient composition, but it was the way the food was put together, was studies with pasta because we found that when we fed pasta to our diabetics, for a given amount of carbohydrate, the same amount of carbohydrate, 50 grams of carbohydrate from pasta, gave half the response of 50 grams um, of carbohydrate from white bread. And the interesting thing there, obviously, is that um, uh, we we were using durum uh, wheat flour for both. So it was simply the the form in which uh, the food was uh, and not, the, uh, not not just the, the amount of carbohydrate in the food or the type of carbohydrate. Um, and that, I think, was, was impressive to us. And we, 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 we found that you could uh, detect this, too, if you looked in vitro, in vitro digestion, you saw the same sort of rate. So beans and peas and lentils, which were fairly low on the glycemic index scale, also released their carbohydrate digestion uh, the carbohydrate when digested in vitro, more slowly. So that, too, is a confirmation.
0: Very interesting area, and I have many questions that I could ask you, but I think that would be unfair to those who have called in. I will save my questions, and I'll ask uh, Patricia to go ahead and give us instructions as to how to get in the queue. But we want to focus on uh, how do we use uh, this content, Dr. Jenkins' article, for improvement and patient care, and uh, we will focus on those types of questions. And, again, if you have experience in uh, counseling or coaching people on dietary changes in diabetes that would be useful to the conversation, Uh, please bring that to us as well. Patricia?
2: Thank you. Today's question and answer session will be conducted electronically. If you would like to ask a question, you may do so by pressing the star key, followed by the digit 1 on your touchtone phone. If you are joining us on a speakerphone, Please make sure your mute function is off to allow your signal to reach our equipment. Again, that is star one. If you have a question, we'll pause for a moment.
0: Dr. Jenkins, one of the things that I would uh, be interested in, and I'm sure others would as well, uh, if you were to look on the web uh, for information about dietary changes with diabetes, uh, there would be an abundance of, of content. Where can we learn specifically about the glycemic index and specifically about the diet that would be recommended in your article? I know uh, on page 2744, the third page of the article, you go into, under methodology, the dietary interventions, which is uh, relatively helpful. Is there more specific information that we can find on the web somewhere that would be helpful to us?
1: To be perfectly honest, Chuck, we've not not been attentive to to the the web approach um, uh, when when trying to get our data mustered. I know know that um, Jenny Brand-Miller in Australia, in Sydney, Australia, so under Brand-Miller, I think, she has got a website where she's put together um, a lot of uh, web-based information on the glycemic index. And she's also turned out a number, as as there are a number of popular books, Rick Gallop also uh, has got a book that was uh, last year on the New York Times bestseller list on on the glycemic index. So I think my my friends and colleagues have written books, um, but I think uh, in terms of a good website that people could turn to, I think that's something that uh, still needs to be addressed. And I think, to be honest, one of the reasons for this is that many of us who've been uh, most concerned with what to do have not felt confident enough uh, until now to start uh, uh, talking about what we're doing. I think this study, for me anyway, opens up a lot of possibilities because it's a larger study, and so has allowed us to do much more dissection than we've done in, in previous times. Good,
0: makes sense. Patricia.
2: Our first question comes from Richard Feynman with SUNY Downstate Medical Center.
0: And if when you're asking a question, if you could just repeat your name uh, and your organization, that would be great.
3: Yes, uh, this is uh, Richard Feynman from SUNY Downstate Medical Center. Hey, Richard. And uh, I wanted to ask a a more general question, and uh, the that is the uh, rationale for a low glycemic index is uh, as dr jenkins uh, explained well is is the actual levels of uh, blood glucose now uh, many people have shown the real advantage to uh substantial carbohydrate restriction which Has not only the same effect but a stronger effect and for a long time uh, that approach was not uh, uh, popular because of the fear that the carbohydrate would be replaced with fat but there's now extensive studies showing that if carbohydrate is low uh, the replacement of the carbohydrate with fat is actually beneficial triglycerides go down tremendously the LDL particle size uh, improves, and I I, uh, had forwarded to Dr. Jenkins uh, and to Dr. Kilo uh, a paper that by coincidence came out just about the same day as Dr. Jenkins uh, from Eric Westman at Duke uh, comparing a low glycemic index diet with uh, a uh, a more uh, low-carbohydrate diet where the uh, carbohydrate was actually uh, substantially reduced. And uh, as Dr. Jenkins found, the, the low glycemic index was quite effective in reducing uh, uh, hemoglobin A1C and uh, other markers, but the low-carbohydrate diet was quite a bit more effective. And um, I wonder, what one of the problems in this field is that uh, this is not an isolated demonstration, and there are a large number of people and a large number of practitioners showing the value of the carbohydrate restriction, which you know has the same rationale as glycemic index but uh, the um uh, uh, how shall I say that the uh uh we have a partisan situation, perhaps not unlike uh the uh, situation in Congress and I wonder if this isn't a good, a good time to uh, <laughs> uh, go beyond our part of activity the, you think Richard? well in the spirit of the inauguration yeah, that the, uh, uh, we should get together on these uh, issues um, I mean I think that the two uh, two approaches have the same
1: uh,
3: uh, the same rationale and um, so I wonder if uh there is a common ground and uh in fact that, you know I, I to wonder why uh, uh people who use the low glycemic index uh, don't actually use the uh, data from uh, uh carbohydrate restriction to support the uh,
0: the basic rationale no, richard uh, really appreciate the question and um Dr. Jenkins, being a Canadian, he tends to be more uh, middle-of-the-road and bring, tends to bring people together better maybe than we do in the U.S. So, Dr. Jenkins, why don't we take that one on?
1: Right. Well, uh, thank you, Chuck. Uh-huh. I want to thank Richard, too, because he, uh, as, uh, as editor of Nutrition and Metabolism, uh, published a paper. And I think you're, you're the founding editor, I think. Is that, that right, Richard? I am, yes. Yeah. So, <clears throat> obviously, congratulations to you. Um, so, and, and also, thank you for... <clears throat> letting me in on your your excellent editorial and uh, and uh, the paper which actually one of my colleagues had uh, had got off the off the web uh, the eric Westman's paper in your in your journal i think you raise a a, a very important point and um, just to let you know that we're not entirely slipping on this one we've we've been looking at uh, at at uh, both the fat on the protein side, interestingly, as as plant-based diets, and finding uh, very good effects in terms of of lipids and lipoproteins when you use vegetable proteins and vegetable oils. as you know, there's been some concern that um, uh, we've not seen the cholesterol lowering or there may be some change in, in particle size. Uh, and, and a rise in HDL, but we've not seen an LDL reduction uh, with the the conventional um, Atkins-type um, approach to uh, the low carb diet. <coughs> but I think using the plant-based sources, uh, you can get this and uh, get all the other advantages as well. So I, no, I, I would I would agree with you. Um, our aim, <coughs> to be honest with with the the current study, was really to try and make sure. That we had shown that simply without <coughs> manipulating the total amount of available carbohydrate, but simply by, by changing its rate, uh, we could still get an effect. And I think the, that certainly the, the glycemic index concept, uh, through the glycemic load concept, has, uh, has incorporated I think what you're saying, and, and I know that my, my friends at, uh, in Boston, my friends of what Willard's group at, at uh, public school school of public health um, have uh, have been working on the load concept uh, incorporating both the glycemic index in other the slow release and the reduce, the reduction in, in total carbohydrates so I think uh, I, that's one way forward it, it'll be interesting to see um, what sustainability of these diets is going to be like too, which I think we we both agree that uh, compliance is not always uh, good with with diets that are too extreme and um, we really have to see where this goes and I think what what I think Richard is is, is saying is that there's there's certainly room for us to cross-fertilise these ideas. and and possibly to do studies now which which are uh, combining both aspects. Uh, And I think that that's, I think, a direction for the future. Uh, The the current is just to show that the low glycemic index works because at some time that's that's been a matter of some doubt in some circles.
0: Great. Um, And for those who might be interested, uh, the article that Dr. Feynman was referring to is uh, in the December 19, uh, 2008 issue of Nutrition and Metabolism by Dr. Eric Westman and colleagues from uh, from Duke. So, very helpful. Uh, appreciate that, and I'm sure we'll get into more of these issues as additional people uh, queue up to ask questions. Patricia.
2: Again, that is star one. If you would like to ask a question, our next question comes from Jackie Allen with New Heights Community Health Center. Hi there. I, I guess it was um, partly answered already, but I guess I was looking, always looking for tools that have more listings of glycemic index of different foods, including things like uh, the difference, I have a lot of clients ask me uh, about the ripeness of fruits, and I'm not quite sure, other than the books that are published, and a few, you know, the website that you mentioned, um, to to access for the GI listings.
1: Jackie, I think you're raising important points. Um, uh, Our our literature in this area is is really restricted, I think, to a few people who've written books in this area, and um, (coughs) web-based information is is not, I think, readily available, apart from, I say, Jenny Brown-Miller's website um, out of Sydney University. Um, But I think... You, you raise the, the fruit issue is one which is now fascinating us because it does just as the starchy foods have an effect on uh, on the haemoglobin A1c and other aspects of metabolism. So it appears does the fruit and the fruit the fruit as you <laughs> you rightly pointed out um, have the issue of ripeness that is a major concern. I mean it's it's not only the ripeness but also the climate in which it was it was grown. So. Whereas, um, you know, cornflakes are cornflakes pretty much wherever you get them and whatever time of the year you get them, um, a, a pear is not a pear at all times of the year. Do you know what I mean? Or wherever you've got it.
2: And the different varieties.
1: You've got it, absolutely. So some, and some you can, I mean, we know, you can taste some. Some are very sweet and some aren't. And it's the same with a banana. You can get a banana that's, that's yellow with with brown spots on it and is is soft and very sweet. Um, You can get another that's green, certainly green at both ends with a little yellow uh, in the middle and that is not particularly sweet and has a much lower glycemic index than the very yellow spotty one. So we as yet haven't haven't put our our heads together and, and got clear guidelines on this because uh, the data are only now coming out to show that this could be very important in terms of of physiological effects, even for people who eat modest amounts of fruit. So I think you've raised an important question. I wish I had the answer. I think that if you, if it's sweet, it's likely to be higher glycemic index. Um, But again, um, I think the generality that we would give you is that if you're talking about the average pear, the average orange, um, and the the average apple, and raspberries, blackberries, black currants, uh, blueberries, these sorts of, of of berry fruit, these tend to be at the lower end of the scale of the glycemic index. So um, useful foods to to put into a low glycemic index diet, and foods which should be perhaps more as treats. Um, the sort of, uh, the sweet pineapples, the very ripe bananas, um, and, uh, and these sorts of foods um, tend to be at the higher end. We're not saying, and please don't misunderstand me, the glycemic index is only one classification of foods, and it only, should only be part of your reason for selecting foods. Right. But I, I, I'm not for one minute trying to say this is the reason you select foods it is one reason that you use amongst many um to select the sort of foods that go into the diet you need. So don't don't please ever quote me as saying, I think bananas are bad foods. When they're ripe I think they're fine. My my father lived to 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 a healthy old age in his nineties eating very ripe bananas. Um and uh, I've always enjoyed pineapple. So I'm I'm not for one minute knocking the higher glycemic index fruit, but I'm just saying for those who need to get a little bit extra control, um, the, the temperate climate fruit, if you like, as opposed to the tropical types of fruit, uh, tend to have an advantage. So look at it as an advantage rather than a disadvantage of the other.
2: Okay. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much, Jackie. We appreciate the question. Patricia?
2: That is star one, if you have a question. We have no questions in the queue at this time.
0: Uh, and, again, if you have questions or experiences that you'd like to share with us, please go ahead and hit uh, star one. Uh, David, it is interesting to me that we're, you know, it's 2009. We're still working out so much of the dietary issues uh, in diabetes. One might have thought we would have gotten to this much earlier uh, in, uh, in healthcare's, um care's uh, history. Uh, why is it so challenging for us to work out what the appropriate diet for a diabetic ought to be? And then maybe perhaps you can uh, – we really are talking about type 2 diabetes here, not type 1 di- diabetes. Right. And, well, I, uh, I
1: think you're right, Chuck. I think part of the I, – I wouldn't think that it's just the diabetic diet that we're concerned about. I think we're concerned about what diet should be like for the future. Do you know what I mean? I mean, there was a time when we we were really quite convinced – that higher-carbohydrate diets, lower-fat diets, were the way forward. And there are still many of us who, who believe that there's, there's life left in carbohydrate foods, you know what I mean? But there are also those now who believe that we should be restricting carbohydrate um, quite significantly. And I would suggest to you that part of the reason why we have some changes in the nature of the diets and uncertainty now in what was once certainty. Um, and therefore we look as if we're groping, maybe because if you look at the shape of the nation, as it were, it's changing. It it seems to be expanding round the middle. Do you know what I mean? And with that central expansion um, comes the so-called metabolic syndrome um, and comes a whole raft of other things associated with our increased central adiposity. And I think that's in... uh, Although... uh, Dr. Atkins is, is no longer with us. I think his legacy lingers on because I think that was something that he drew attention to fairly early on, in other words, the advantage of, of cutting the carb. Um, on the other hand, if you have someone who is not sedentary, who is relatively athletic and slim, then uh, the sort of diet that you might want if you're... Uh, sedentary and a little overweight uh, may be very different. In other words, uh, the, the, the athlete or even the, the sort of relatively fit individual who keeps themselves in good shape can handle a lot of carbohydrates and probably with advantage and certainly with no advantage. So what we're saying is now we're having to say well now now we've got the type 2 diabetic patient. And what sort of data are they going to want well there there you see the 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 carbohydrate restriction that that uh, richard is is is, is has been mentioning uh, may have 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 good grounds. The trouble is that the diets predominantly there there are some exceptions there's a recent um, exception um, uh, from uh, of a study from israel that shows that a Mediterranean diet a slightly lower carbohydrate intake and a low carbohydrate diet uh, with more plant foods in it um, may actually be sustainable. But for the most part, um, and also a diet by a publication in general by Chris Gardner also showed good compliance um, with, uh, with a low carbohydrate diet. But a lot of the low carbohydrate diets are not well complied with, and that poses a problem certainly in in type 2 diabetes where you want people to be relatively constant because you're you're, you're treating them with medications and you're hoping to keep them in in a relatively uh, narrow uh, metabolic band. So the the lack of compliance and the lack of of, of our ability to get compliant diets, uh, which are uh, particularly low in carbohydrate, remains something of a general problem, and That's why I say that I think if one can can liberalise this very low carbohydrate diet and do it by the use of low glycemic index foods, and that's perhaps the uh, bipartisan approach that that Richard was talking about, if one can do that then one can make the diets perhaps uh, both effective and durable and palatable.
0: Right, and Dr. Feynman, if you have any desire to jump back into the conversation, please feel free to do so. Dr. Jenkins, I think that uh, I really value that part of the conversation. I do value the research as being research on diet in general, using type 2 diabetes as uh, perhaps the substrate in this case, but we do have a lot to learn about uh, dietary management in general in the population. Perhaps our middle has expanded more quickly than your middle, but all of our middles have expanded. And so it's very useful from that perspective.
1: Well, I don't know. Canadians are middle of the road, so middle could be, uh, could be another worrying word.
0: <laughs> uh, Patricia?
2: Our next question comes from Jean Lewis with St. Clair Hospital. Yeah, hi. Um, I do have a question. Has it ever been considered to test a mixed diet for the glycemic index? Because as dietitians, we don't teach just eat one single food. Like
1: you know, just eat a plate of carrots. Just eat. Exactly. We do things. That's right. Yeah. Absolutely. No, I agree. Thank you. Um, well, I think uh, uh, the biggest, the biggest mixed meal that we that we we give, obviously, is the total diet ourselves, and those are the diets that we're advocating. And obviously, when when we talk to you about a diet, um, a low glycemic index diet, if we don't just feed them low glycemic index foods, obviously, one tries to keep that as a balanced diet. And, and one also um, stresses uh, low saturated fat, um, and uh, sources good sources of, of protein, especially vegetable proteins, uh, which fill up the macronutrient profile of the diet. We don't actually um, we don't actually recommend um, specific uh, lunchtime or dinnertime entrees. But again, um, you're right, when you take a mixed meal, uh, that tends to blunt the glycemic response. So why are we not using um, the the additional factors that may not carry the glycemic index? Why not have these additional factors in fat and protein um, to go along with lowering the glycemic uh, impact of the total meal? And I think, in a way, that's where, where, where Richard was talking about the fat and the protein, because these things, these, these macronutrients, also have an effect on the glycemic response to carbohydrate. So I think you're, 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 you're right, Gene. Uh, that, that's perhaps another area where we could start thinking of meal. We find, for example, that if you have um, some almonds with your dessert, Uh, If if you've got a slightly lower glycemic index dessert, uh, the almonds um, with good fat and and, and, and good protein will tend to blunt the glycemic response even further. So, I mean, carrying that forward is probably the sort of of approach that we should be making in order to maximise effects on postprandial glycemia. So thank you for that one. I think that's... another important area we we need to go into. At present, we can only just suggest to you um, what foods may be low glycemic index that you would incorporate into a healthy diet.
0: Gene, thank you very much for the question. Oh, thank you. Uh, David, um, um, as a general internist myself, let's see, a decent number of diabetics, I would have to say that, my ability to do good nutritional counseling is probably relatively poor, if I'm honest about
1: that. Um, well, you don't have to be modest about that. I <laughs> think that, that the rest of the world would say, amen, that goes for all of us. <laughs> that is true. So, from
0: a systems perspective, what should I do with this? Um, I certainly can develop a standard of referring all of my diabetics to nutrition, nutritional counseling maybe once a year, maybe once every two years, maybe it depends on how much... Uh, knowledge that pre-existing knowledge that they have and how well-managed they already are. Uh don't know. I do value what you were talking about earlier about the individualization of it uh, in terms of uh, is somebody relatively sedentary and overweight or are they a relatively thin adult-onset diabetic uh, that is relatively athletic. What I don't know when I send somebody off to a nutritionist is what kind of advice they're really getting. Uh, and maybe that's my problem. Maybe I need to meet with our nutritionist's our local nutritionist and understand what it is that they're that they're telling the diabetics. How do, how, help me from a systems perspective. What should I be doing in that regard?
1: Well, I think uh, you're right, and, and you're you're raising a point which which affects all of us. I mean, those of us who work in centres uh, where these particular concepts are, are sort of uh, are well known and understood uh, don't worry about this too much. And so, to be perfectly honest, we haven't we haven't sort of we're not in a position to street-proof the outside world in in how to handle these things. So I have to say that uh, you you have me in a deficient state here. But I think you certainly can go, and and I think you raised the important point, you can go to your your, your dietetic group, um, either in in your centre, your hospital, or whatever, and chat to them about what sort of advice they're giving and uh, possibly refer them to some of the original... Uh, publications in in the area or some of the more popular books I have to say that um, I I, I mentioned uh, Jenny Brown-Miller and I mentioned Rick Gallup because I think those books work Um, but also the glycemic index is is I believe uh, um, quite a central feature of say the South Beach diet Um, Barry Sears has used it in the Zone Diet a lot of the more popular books have taken this up, and I think by and large <coughs> they've done a reasonably good job. So there are popular books around that that patients can have a look at. Um, what I think it says to us, though, is that perhaps some some greater effort on our part, as time goes by, uh, to make these things more generally available, um, is is perhaps part of our mandate. Uh, Right now, as I say, we're we're, we're less well-equipped. What I would say, though, is that there are a few foods that I would encourage patients to take in the diet. And so this is the sort of thing that you can can write on your shirt sleeve, do you know what I mean, and take into the clinic. Um, uh, Hopefully you don't don't get the shirt washed before you do the clinic. And those are things like uh, cooked, dried beans, peas, lentils, lentil stews, soups. These sorts of carbohydrate offerings are low glycemic index. If one takes pasta al dente, and the temptation with pasta is to eat too much of it, that's the trouble. But if one one portions one's pasta out in the amounts that one should be taking um, in sort of... uh, half cup or three quarters of a cup portions of cooked pasta then I think one again has got a low glycemic index starchy food. Uh, Parboiled rice, um, notably Uncle Ben's rice for example, Um, I I carry no no flag for Uncle Ben but um, I think these sorts of things uh, are useful so one makes a, an exchange one, one, one sometimes gets one's uh, friends' patients from, from the Indian subcontinent to change their rice from uh, from regular um, white rice to a brown parboiled rice, um, and that may make a difference in terms of of the uh, of, of their glycemic control. Or when one may say, why not try and use whole barley? Barley used to be in granny soups and stews. Um, it's very useful. That's low glycemic index as, as, a, as a whole grain. And and one can cook barley and eat barley as rice, and, and that has a significantly uh, lower glycemic index. So changing the nature of the carbohydrate with the, with the main meal uh, may be very useful. So... Those sort of things one found are useful and we do have a number of breads, some of them are not unfortunately at this point transportable because we've, we've analysed them actually in the Toronto area that are low glycemic index. Um, the pumpernickel breads I always said were low glycemic index in the past um, and so they were. But now to make them sweeter and give them more of a lift of the blood glucose the manufacturers are putting in um, beet syrup. Um, to as I say, raise the blood glucose and give them a sweeter taste. Sure. Uh, and this is, a, this, is a, this is a pity from our point of view, but in fact has encouraged sales, so what can we do about that? Right. Uh, the trouble is that, to be honest, many of the things that are sweet and melt in the mouth do so because they're rapidly absorbed because your salivary amylase can mm-hmm. digest them, and that's half the reason… Why people like them, and that's the reason why manufacturers are often loath to produce low glycemic index offerings, because they don't have that particular mouthfeel and mouth taste um, that the melt-in-the-mouth stuff does. Right.
0: Well, there are unintended consequences of everything, and if we move everybody to a lentil and bean-based diet, we could be in trouble, and we have to you hold you accountable for that.
1: You could get more <laughs> fat. Yeah. Um, yeah. Absolutely, but then and that, which which is. No so significantly less bad than you might have got without. <laughs> right. The,
0: uh, my wife and I have recently discovered a, I, I believe it's a chickpea based more of a chickpea based pasta
1: really well that that sounds as if that could be good i mean to be honest, pasta is difficult to improve on, but a chickpea based pasta may well do even better
0: right. Um, uh, just to let everybody know, you've been referring to Jenny Brand Miller's book, and, in fact, she does have a website. It's called glycemicindex.com. So if you wanted to check out her book or her colleagues, you can go to glycemicindex.com and find those resources there. Uh, Patricia?
2: Our next question comes from Richard Feynman with SUNY State Medical Center.
0: Welcome back, Richard. Oh, uh, Thank you. I
3: wanted to uh, – Follow up on David's point uh, about um, encouraging uh, the patient from uh, the clinicians point of view and uh, I, I would I would first take exception to the idea that compliance for uh, low carbohydrate diets is uh, any worse than any other uh, I think the compliance is a function of the interaction uh, between the uh, physician and the patient or other uh, health care giver. And uh, I'm not primarily a clinician, but the uh, study that I'm associated with, we try to encourage the patient to use their glucometer uh, to guide their own diet. They can tell, you know, what foods are raising their blood sugar and what aren't. And, uh uh you know, this is something in the early stages, so I can't, uh, uh, you know, tell you the outcomes of our studies, but I, I think anecdotally uh, uh, this is the way uh, leukometers are used. I would make the point also that uh, I published a survey of the Low Carvers Forum, which is a support group uh, on the Internet, and uh, I checked yesterday by coincidence, and they have 114,000 members. So uh, there are a lot of people who are able to do, uh, uh, you know, a good carbohydrate restriction. Uh, so uh, maybe I'm being a little more partisan than uh, my uh, initial inaugural. Uh, I think
1: your 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 inaugural speech. I think you're now uh, you're now veering to the left. Richard,
3: (laughs) I don't know Uh, well. um, I I think uh, the the people on our side of the aisle have the idea that, uh, in fact, uh, you know, a glycemic uh, index is a compromise on uh, leaving out the carbohydrates altogether. And uh, I think, for certainly, for people with diabetes. that has you know historically been uh, the approach and I, I don't think um, you know I don't think I, I don't think there's any evidence that uh, the original notion uh, is not true uh, but in the uh, in the interest of partisanship can I uh, give the address of our website uh, we have some information on all of these things sure uh, it's uh, NM as in Nutrition Metabolism Society.org. And uh, uh, we're not particularly partisan. We think that obviously low carbohydrate diets are underappreciated, but there's a lot of information of all types there. So. Super. Appreciate
0: that.
1: Uh, if I can uh, just respond in the interest of partisanship to, uh, to Richard. I I believe that um, we're talking about uh, low carbohydrate. We're not talking presumably about ultra-low carbohydrate. I mean, I think there is the ultra-low carbohydrate, which uh, was pioneered, I think, um, uh, quite well by Dr. Atkins. But I think, and I I would say that that, I I I would take Richard on in a partisan fashion on this to say whether that was, well complied with over long periods of time. I would agree with him that no diet is well complied with over large long periods of time for the most part, or some diets are, some aren't, but I think that the more extreme you get from um, a sort of conventional macronutrient range, um, and I say convention, convention for the time and for the place, uh, the more difficult it is for people to comply to these diets. So I think that uh, one can go very low carbohydrate, ultra low and compliance is is not good. Many of us have got patients, uh, many patients who come to us in the clinics um, and say I was on a Atkins diet or I was on a whatever diet which was low carbohydrate and uh, they're no longer there and they're still worried about their weight. So I, I think that. Certainly we can, there there is a major influence, I think, of of Dr. Atkins on the way diabetics are treating themselves now. So like it or not, um, the carbohydrate in the diabetics that that we see has slipped from what used to be probably about 10 or 12 years ago, uh, around 50, 55% carbohydrate. They're now down about 43%. Uh, to forty five percent carbohydrate, so I think uh, Richard is right in that way. Uh, there has been a shift, and it 's taken taken hold in terms of a lower carbohydrate diet that 's happened al- al- already whether there's going to be the, the change and I think it has to be an environmental change, in other words, the sort of the, the nature of the food supply and what people can eat conveniently uh, to take us down to maybe uh, 20 or 30 grams of carbohydrates a day um, and have that as a sustainable thing, I have my doubts. I really do have my doubts. I think that, that, that will be a, a difficult and extreme range, and I, but, but, I, but what I would say, if one does go to that level, it will become very important um, as to what the nature of the protein source and the fat source is once you want sustainable diets at that level. And if one is going to that level, <coughs> and I think experimentally we'd, we'd be interested in going to that level now, um, not therapeutically but, but, uh, but in terms of experimentation, then I think one would want to be choosing um, uh, the, the vegetable sources of fat and protein to drive down one's, uh, one's carbohydrates. I think to use the animal sources would not be um, physiologically... Uh, the best approach, and certainly not from in terms of environmental sustainability if we have the human species eating that sort of a diet. Wonderful.
0: I appreciate that. And we are at the end of the hour. It's been a very uh, a robust conversation. I have a sense that it could go on for quite a bit longer, but we are at the end of the hour. Dr. Jenkins, I really want to thank you uh, for your participation on today's call. It was really a wonderful conversation and the enlightened discussion that we had. As a reminder, Offer in the Room is a monthly program that takes place on the third Wednesday of every month at 2 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time, sponsored by JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and IHI, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Once again, our next call will be on Wednesday, February 18th, at 2 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time, and the article will be Treadmill Exercise and Resistance Training in Patients with Peripheral Artery Disease by Dr. Mary McDermott in the January 14, 2009 issue of JAMA. Thank you very much for joining us today and for being a part of Author in the Room. Good day.